0: Welcome to the National Writers Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm your host, Doug Stanton. Ken Follett is one of the world's most popular writers and has been writing best-selling thrillers and historical novels since the 1970s. He's the author of 36 books, including Eye of the Needle and The Pillars of the Earth. Ken's latest novel is called The Armor of Light, which is the fifth book in his Kingsbridge series. He spoke with Up North Live news director, Pat Livingston, who was at the Alluvion in Traverse City, Michigan, as Ken joined by video from his home in England. Pat asked Ken to describe where he was speaking to him from. Uh, well, this is
1: my library. I have uh, a country house in Hertfordshire. It's on the outskirts of a town called Stevenage, which is the town my wife Barbara represented in parliament for many years. And uh, that's uh, how come we happen to be living Uh, on the outskirts of this particular town but it's a country house with a big garden and uh, this room is where I write Uh, as you can see it's it's got a lot of books like uh, every author I like to be surrounded by books a lot of reference books and and often novels by people who are better writers than I am so uh, I spend I spend most of my time most mornings for most days from early in the morning till mid-afternoon Monday to Friday, I spend in this room writing.
2: So do you write all the time or just writing when you're working on a book?
1: I'm always working on a book. You know, I delivered the armor of light uh, at Christmas and I immediately started writing a, a new story. I don't stop because um, I'm kind of into it. You know, I like it. I, uh, it's fascinating. It's challenging. It's the most interesting thing in my life writing these novels. And uh, I'm not really very interested in taking a break. People sometimes ask me why I, you know, will I retire? And I say, uh, when I go to hell, they'll make me play golf all day. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I read somewhere that your parents, when you were growing up, would not let you watch television or movies. Why was that?
1: Well we belonged to quite an extreme uh, Christian sect called the Plymouth Brethren and um, it was thought they thought that uh, the movies and TV and radio and and records were all kind of um, bad for me I guess uh, it was a Puritan sect and we weren't supposed to focus on anything like pleasure we were supposed to focus on the next life the kingdom of heaven uh, and of course I don't know if this used to ha- used to happen in the states but in this country on Saturday mornings all the cinemas would put on a show just for kids with uh, short film series uh, adventure series spaceship series cowboy series and everybody I knew went to the movies on Saturday morning and I wasn't allowed to which I thought was just outrageous. I was so angry about this at the age of seven. But at the age of seven, I joined the public library. And, uh, you know, that I was a great reader already, but uh, books were pretty expensive. And I would get books for Christmas and my birthday, and it was never enough. And then they took me to the public library, and uh, I couldn't believe that I could have any of these books to borrow and read for nothing, free. It was it was like Christmas I was thrilled to bits and so I guess I went to the library on Saturday morning instead of the movies and um, um, I don't know maybe that's why I'm a writer
2: <laughs> I think I read somewhere that one of the first books that you read and that uh, kind of inspired you was live and let die by Ian Fleming is that true
1: Yeah, that's true. I read Live and Let Die when I was 12. Now, at this point, I had read all the books in the children's library. And uh, so they kind of had to let me into the grown-up library. And uh, that's where I discovered James Bond. And I was just so knocked out. Live and Let Die, I've I've read it three times, actually. I recently reread it. And um, it's a terrific, terrific story. It's very thrilling, great fight scenes. And I just thought... James Bond was the greatest thing ever. And uh, from then on, I was a fan and I read all of the books. And it influenced me in a way, not in the way you'd expect, but because I, I, I can't write like Ian Fleming. And, um, it, you know, that kind of story with the central hero was never really my thing. But what I remembered when I started to write my own books, what I remembered was the thrill of holding in my hands a new James Bond book, knowing how much I was going to enjoy it. And I remember thinking, if I want to be a successful writer, my readers have to feel that. They have to feel the th- that it's a thrill to have a new Ken Follett book. Now, that's a pretty high bar to set, and but that was kind of my aim from really from my early 20s, and although it's kind of ambitious, uh, I think it was, it was not a bad ambition.
2: So did that lead you to your early career and you were known for writing a lot of thrillers is, is, did Ian Fleming give you that inspiration and that's the genre you went into first?
1: Uh, yes, I like it's true. I liked Ian Fleming and I liked a lot of other thriller writers as well. I started writing thrillers cause those were the novels I liked best of all and, uh, of course, I, my career didn't didn't exactly uh, go off like a rocket. In fact, my early books were, were flops. Uh, I was lucky to get them published. I was encouraged by the fact, you know, that I had a book to hold in my hand at the end of the process, a printed book. Um, but it took me a long time to write a good one. And I would go into the bookstore and I would see right at the front of the store there would be a hundred copies of Frederick Forsyth's latest book, and I would look for my book, and it would be all the way at the back of the store, two copies on a shelf, <laughs> and uh, and I I used to think, what do I have to do to get my book to the front of the store? And uh, that question occupied me for about five years, four or five years, while I was uh, continuing to write. I had a job too. I was writing in my spare time and continuing to write that better. And then my 11th book was Eye of the Needle and that was a bestseller and I was uh, I was on my way.
2: So and your first book was for a specific need, a very basic specific need that you needed to write that book. Can you yes. tell us about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Well, um, I was working for a newspaper and my car broke down and I could not afford to get it fixed. It was going to cost £200, I don't know what that was in dollars though, maybe $500 in those days. And uh, I, I went to the bank and asked them to lend me the money to get my car fixed and they said no. But it so happened at that time that one of my colleagues on the newspapers, the London Evening News, had written a thriller and got it published and we were all, all the reporters were really interested in this you know we asked him how did you find the time to write it and how did you get a publisher and how much money did you get and he said 200 pounds <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was uh, you know that in, in the cartoons when a light bulb goes off over the character's head so I went home and I said to said to my wife I was married to my first wife Mary then uh, I said, to I know how we're going to get the car back. I'm going to write a thriller. And she was like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I did. That was my first book. It wasn't very good. I sent it to the same publisher who'd published my colleague's book. And he said, I like it. And I want to publish it. And he gave me £200.
2: And you got your car fixed.
1: I got my car fixed. And I thought, if I write the next book a little more slowly, uh, it might be better. <laughs> and that was. <laughs> That was the beginning of the process, which eventually, four years later I guess it was, uh, led to Ivermeden.
2: So you mentioned that you started as a, I think a general assignment reporter uh, for newspapers, right. but that was not the path you wanted to go. Just tell us about that experience and why you left that.
1: Well in some ways, in some ways I enjoyed it, it was exciting, and you're right. You use the phrase general, general uh, assignment uh, in, uh, we used to call it a fireman because you had to go wherever the fire was and write the story. And in French, it's called chienze écrasés, which means dogs that have been run over. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I did that. But in, the, in the, the five years I spent in newspapers, I realized that I didn't love newspapers. I actually loved books. And uh, I wasn't a bad reporter, but I, you know, I wasn't a great reporter, and it's clear that I was never going to be a great reporter or even a great newspaper editor. Uh, and so I turned to my first love uh, and started trying to write fiction. And, and as I've said, uh, eventually I figured out how to do it well, although it was, it was not a quick process.
2: So in your in your um, early education, I'm just curious: do they have creative writing classes when you're in school in England?
1: I don't think I ever heard of them in those days, and um, uh, no, I don't think that was available in school or in university. What happened in school? I always got top marks for any for anything I wrote. Uh, We they were called it was called composition, meant writing an essay or a story, and I always top marks for that. Um, did much better in that than any other subject. And, and then in university I wrote for the college newspaper, and uh, one or two people said uh, that I wrote well, and I thought, I wonder what that means, <laughs> writing well. <laughs> but I was sort of encouraged to think that I might make a career writing. I was very interested in politics in those days. As a stu- I was a student in London in the late 60s, so with thousands of others, I marched round around the American embassy in protest against the war in Vietnam, and uh, I, my interest in politics sort of led me to journalism, uh, but as I've said, it turned out that journalism wasn't exactly the right thing for me.
2: So let's get into your book, The Armor of Light. Why did you choose, and you brought some great characters in this book out of the Industrial Revolution, but why did you choose to to write about that time period
1: it's a time of strife and uh change always brings strife there are always winners and losers Uh, there was terrific unrest at this time at one point when the when the war had got going uh the 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 london mob threw stones at the king's carriage as it passed through london and uh, they chanted bread and peace that was what they wanted the price of bread had rocketed and they were having trouble feeding their families uh, and a, a lot of a lot of men had gone to war some of them uh, unwillingly and uh, the mob told the king that they wanted bread and peace so it was a time of terrific unrest and i like to tell stories that have some foundation in the history of the time of course I tell stories about the things that concern everybody all the time. Love and marriage, raising children, work and making money, violence and war. These are the things that people worry about and the things that we write stories about. But I like it when those stories grow out of what was happening in the historical background because that, I feel, gives the story authenticity and realism.
2: Walk us through, if you can, all of your characters come from the different classes at that time in England. So just walk us through all the difference, the laborers, the landowners, uh, the working poor.
1: Well, the first character we meet is called Sal. And she lives in a village. Uh, She's a spinner. She has the old-fashioned spinning wheel. And her husband is an agricultural worker. And in most places and most times, the The poorest people have been agricultural workers with no land of their own. They also have a son called Kit, who's going to be six years old now, but he's going to be an important character when he grows up. Um, Sal's husband dies in an accident. Uh, She's expelled from the village, but she goes to Kingsbridge, which is not far away. And she immediately gets a job minding a spinning machine. At this point, a machine has been invented which does the work of eight spinning women at all at the same time. So it's thrown people out of work but on the other hand it's provided other job opportunities. So this is the first move in Sal's life and she's going to become an activist amongst the mill workers of the town. She's very strong and um, she's, she's not violent but she can sure hit back so she, she has a certain status, even among the men of the town. And she's one of the principal characters. Her son, when he grows up, will be a very talented man with machines. And he will actually make money out of the Industrial Revolution. Of course, the people of the town of Kingsbridge at this time, they're making their money by making and selling cloth. And there's a cloth maker called Amos, who's a rather idealistic young man, he inherits his father's business and is shocked and dismayed to find that the business is not in as good shape as he thought it was. So he's he his father dies, he's immediately faced with a financial crisis. He's a Methodist and Methodism comes into my story because it's the rival to the established church and Amos likes it because in the established church, he feels he is told by the priest what he's not a priest in, in the, the um, vicar it would be or, or canon of the cathedral. He's told what he's supposed to believe. And in the Methodist church, they have discussions about what they're supposed to believe. And he feels that he's respected by Methodists, Methodist clergy in the way that he's not by Church of England clergy. And that was actually for a lot of people around about this time, the appeal of alternative churches, that they were not dictated to. However, um, the bishop's daughter is madly in love with Amos. Uh, Unfortunately, he doesn't return her love. He's in love with a girl who is nowhere near as nice as Elsie. And uh, I won't tell you how all that works out. There's a very shrewd guy who's a successful weaver and businessman called Spade, uh, and he's a big character. He falls in love with the bishop's wife. It happens quite a lot in in my books that people fall in love with the wrong person. And uh, this is a lot is of a drop. sleeping around in your book, Ken. There's a there's, well well I guess I guess. Um, uh, there are quite a lot of, there There are a few happy couples too, it's not, uh, <laughs> and, and the bad guy, I must tell you about the bad guy, his name is Hornbeam, and he's mean, he's a mill owner, but he is, he's mean, uh, doesn't respect the people who work for him, and uh, he's w- you're going to hate him. Yeah, well, you already do because you read the book, but readers are going to hate this guy, and they're going to, be impatient for him to meet an unpleasant end, and they will not be disappointed.
2: And as soon as I said sleeping around, people started thumbing through their books. I just wanted you to, wanted you to know that. So you, you mentioned Methodism, and I, and I thought it was interesting there because it, it helped give rise to the education for some of the working poor um, and for Sal and Kit and, and those people that are so prominent in this book. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. Um, the, the name of the book is uh, The Armour of Light. And it's a, it's a quote from the Bible, the Book of Romans. And um, it, it's, the book's called this because in the 18th century, there was a terrific movement of self-education amongst ordinary people. Uh, and they, they learned to read, sometimes some of them learned to read in the Methodist Sunday school. But they learned to read and they started debating societies. They started book clubs in which everybody would put in a little money and they would buy one copy of a book and take it in turns to read it. That was the kind of push towards self-education that happened in the 18th century. And the Methodists were all for that. Um, They wanted people to be able to read the Bible for themselves. And the, the established church was not so keen on that. And some of the bishops and so on said, "Would well, if, if, they, if they read the Bible for themselves, everyone will have his own individual interpretation of Christianity. And of course, that's not very far from from what happened. I mean, there were the um, non-conformist religions splintered and splintered until there were absolutely hundreds of them. But at least people were believing something in something they thought of for themselves rather than something they'd been told. So that was all part of this ed- self-education movement. And it's... What drove it was the feeling people had that they couldn't stand up to the aristocracy and the bosses because the, the upper class people were all educated and they were uneducated and they, they didn't know how to argue uh, with these clever people. And so they decided they had to learn. It was a very important, very important thought at that time. Uh, and so the armor of light the their idea was that uh, education and enlightenment would protect them from exploitation
2: you know and and as one of the characters the bishop if you were a bishop or if you were a religious leader at that that point in time you were pretty well off and you did have um, a say in politics you were a a figure people looked up to but i was surprised at where they were in the class sections.
1: Well, it's certainly true that bishops were mostly upper class. Um, the system was that um, if, a, if a lord or if, a, if an earl or a, a duke, his, his first son would, of course, inherit his title and the estate, and the second son would go into the military, and the third son would go into the church, and this was the traditional way that aristocratic men disposed their sons, as it were. So a lot of, and and actually this house that I live in is called a rectory, because just across the street, there's a church, a very old church, a medieval church, and a a huge, I suppose it's a palace, it's a huge, massive house with 150 rooms, and um, uh, the Lord would live there. The church is in his garden, and just across the street, there's a house which the rector lives in. And um, of course, the, the rector would also often be the son of the Lord. And um, that's why this is quite a nice house. It's not a, it's not a cheap little house for a poor priest. It's a, it's a big house for the son of the Lord. So that was the system. It was very social, and um, a lot of clergy were really quite well off. And and you know they would they would go hunting and um, they would give uh, great parties and uh, go to London and and lose their money playing cards and that kind of thing. I, I mean they weren't all like that, of course. There was as as always in any church there were um, high-minded people who dedicate them dedicated themselves to the spiritual welfare of their flock, but there were a lot of people in the church who just enjoyed life, and and that was one of the things that turned people off the Church of England and into uh, um, churches like the Methodists.
2: Ken, it it looks like you have a lot
1: of fun with your research. You really enjoy it. Yes, it's true. I think all authors enjoy the research, at least partly because it's a lot easier than writing. So how long did it
2: take you to do not only about the, the weaving and how that evolved over time, but then researching the battles in the war? What, how much time did that take before you actually sat down to write, or did you do it while you were writing?
1: I normally spend six months to a year researching and planning the book. And uh, that's because the research and the planning go together. So uh, 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 on one day I may find that I don't know enough about something. For example, in this book, how far could you go on a horse in a day? That kind of thing. And so next day I'll read a, a book uh, about horses in the 18th century. And that, the book will give me uh, other ideas, new ideas for storylines. So the two things go together. And it takes me six months to a year, and then when when that's all done, I start writing chapter one.
2: So, as you're doing your research, and do you start to visualize, or do the words start to come to you as you're describing this?
1: At that point, visualizing it is the most important thing, because I I have to make you see it. Therefore, I have to be I have to see it myself first. And then I can write a description which will, which I hope will make you feel as if you were really there. And actually visiting places is really, it, it's so useful to me. And it's uh, something I missed during the lockdown because of COVID. You know, when I wrote my, my last book, Never, uh, I would really have liked to visit some of the North African locations that were part of that story. Uh, and because of the lockdown, I couldn't. And I, and I missed it. Although, I will say, there is something that's enormously helpful to authors is Google Earth. <laughs> because, true, you can, you know, when my characters in Never were crossing the Sahara Desert in a dilapidated bus, I could look at every place they were. I could see a satellite photograph of each of the locations that they passed through. And that was tremendously helpful. But nevertheless, a visit is the best.
2: You're listening to the National Writers Series from and Public Radio. Coming up in the second half, more from best-selling author Ken Follett.
0: You're listening to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton, the founder of the year-long book festival held in the City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan. Now back to Pat Livingston's conversation with Ken Follett.
2: You write a lot about the recruiting by the English into the army, and they 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 did it in all kinds of ways, and and some of it not really very fair.
1: Yeah. Um, it, Exactly. Um, For the Navy, for example, men were just kidnapped from seaside towns and tied up and put in a boat and taken out to sea. they wake up the next morning um, three miles uh, off the coast and have no way of getting back. Um, At the Battle of Waterloo, there were 10,000 Irish prisoners, men who'd been in jail in Ireland, and they were just taken out of jail and shipped to Belgium. There were a lot of unwilling people you could be, if you committed a crime you could be sentenced to join the army. And um, it's kind of, you know, it, with the um, recruiting methods like that, it is kind of amazing that the British won. <laughs>
2: <laughs> one of the things that, that struck me that uh, women often went with their men to war. They were on the battlefield.
1: That was one of the, the great discoveries I made during this research. And the women with the soldiers, you know, they weren't just girlfriends or anything. They had come from England and the army liked this because um, the women were very useful Uh, and they would perform some of the tasks that women were always supposed to perform, like laundry and so on. But also in the battle, they would go onto the battlefield with water for their men uh, or food uh, or ammunition. And then sometimes they would they would carry the wounded back off the battlefield and take them to the surgeon's tent so the army actually really liked having women it was round about one in six one one woman to six men in the army so 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 quite a high proportion of women in the army and the, and the army tolerated them because they were so useful and of course and of course they were brave and and some of them died you know they would might they might go onto the battlefield carrying only food and water, but, but you know, a cannonball would kill them just as it would kill anybody else. Talk
2: uh, with us a little bit about the two generals that are so prominent in, in this book and, and uh, the backdrop of war in Wellington and Napoleon, and, and in your research into both of them.
1: Well, um, they're both, of course, hugely admired in their own countries. And Wellington is quite a hero uh, for the British. Uh, He was undoubtedly a good general, and uh, he was quite a character. Uh, He had um, lots and lots of, I mean, talk about sleeping around. What happens in Kingsbridge is nothing to what happened in the aristocracy. And uh, Wellington had uh, many lovers. In fact, uh, you will remember that that just before the Battle of Waterloo, a great ball is held uh, in Brussels and uh, Wellington is um, seen walking around the ball with one of his mistresses, who happens to be very heavily pregnant. Uh, nobody was in the least embarrassed by this kind of thing, apparently in the 18th century in Brussels, at least among the aristocracy. But he was, he was undoubtedly sh- a shrewd general, and he had many victories. He fought in India first, and then in Spain, because Napoleon conquered Spain for the French, and then a British army, combined with Spanish fighters to drive the French out. And, and Wellington had a lot to do with that. Napoleon was really, he probably certainly the greatest general, general of his time and possibly of all time. And I'll give you, give you an illustration. You know, the British were in Belgium with the Dutch and the Prussians and they were getting ready to invade France and overturn Napoleon's regime and restore the monarchy. But they weren't in much of a hurry. And in fact, on the 15th of June, Wellington was at this ball that I mentioned, dancing and, and walking around with beautiful women and so on, drinking champagne, uh, you know, taking his time about getting ready to invade France. And then the news came to this ball that Napoleon had invaded Belgium. He invaded the country that was getting ready to invade him. Very smart move and so typical of Napoleon to do the thing that the enemy least expects. And he nearly won. I mean, you know, we've talked already about the uh, development of the battle and how eventually the British were rescued by the Prussians. Um, he, Napoleon nearly won, but he didn't. And. Um, uh, that actually was the end of a most astonishing military career. I mean, he just, you know, he won in, first of all, he protected the French Revolution. And then he won in Belgium and Holland and Spain and Italy, made the mistake of marching to Moscow, which is, which is, uh, and, and uh, Hitler failed to learn from that. And Hitler also made that mistake, marching on Moscow. But that was, so that, so Waterloo was the end. For Napoleon, uh, he, you know, he he played his best card. He'd been defeated, and um, he was imprisoned and, and sent to live on a very remote island. And they brought back the French king, who was really a disaster. He was so fat he couldn't walk without crutches, and he, you know, he did. He stopped paying the army. What a dumb thing to do! Stop paying the army. You're the king and you don't pay the you know the the first thing a king ought to do is make sure that his country is defended anyway he was louis the 18th louis dix weeks and he was a disaster so the end is a bit unsatisfactory isn't it 23 years of war what do they do they get rid of a great general and a great leader uh, and they they think they've destroyed the re- revolution and they bring in a really terrible king, uh, and France is in sort of turmoil for, for almost another century. However, the the main characters in the story feel a triumph. You know, they those who survive the battle. Some of them die at Waterloo. Those who survive survive, and they go back to their their uh, conflict with the mill owners and. In some ways, they have victories. They're allowed to form trade unions to protect themselves. And uh, you know, things begin to get better. In the Victorian era, uh, in working people were not quite so savagely repressed as they were in 18th century. So, so my characters make some progress.
2: You mentioned that some of your characters um, die in the end. How much do you struggle
1: with who lives and who dies? Well, you know, I don't really like to kill any of the decent (laughs) story. Uh, Of course, I do always kill the bad guys. Um, But it it would would seem, it would be so unrealistic to describe a huge battle involving almost 200,000 men. And, And it would be so unrealistic if none of the people we know were to die, people would I think the readers would feel well that was too much of a lucky coincidence. So it really I thought it was really important that some of the important characters should be slain in that terrific battle. And the other reason for that is that it would be wrong to understate the misery of a of a battle and the misery it causes the people who are left behind war war causes the most tremendous misery to people who never went near the battlefield because they've lost the ones they love. So, and, and that, it would have been wrong to write about a battle without taking into account that terrible grief that people feel.
2: You mentioned that you write several drafts as you're, you're completing this book, and how often does an ending change, and is the ending the hardest thing to write for an author?
1: No, I don't think so. The ending is not the hardest part. I write an outline, and then I write a first draft, and then I rewrite it. So there are sort of three major stages, Uh, and of course things change all the time, and the ending, sometimes the ending is obvious, and I just have to write it. Uh, Sometimes, in the case of the Pillars of the Earth, for example, I really didn't know how to end that. And um, I started writing The Pillars of the Earth without knowing how it was going to end. And eventually, I thought it would end with the murder of Thomas Beckett and the humiliation of King Henry. And, 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 that served, and, and I could send one or two of my characters to this tremendous ceremony in Canterbury where the King had to crawl and be flogged probably ceremonially flogged rather than seriously flogged he had to crawl on his hands and knees to the church and it 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 was a moment that showed that there was a balance between the power of the church and the power of the king they weren't what it wasn't one of them was all, wasn't an all powerful king the king was restrained by the church which is really one of the uh great virtues of the, of that that part of the middle ages that the there was a limit to what aristocratic people could do and that limit was held by the church i saw an interview you did once and you said never
2: want people to read a sentence twice in my books
1: yes that's absolutely right that's absolutely i don't want people to stop you know i i want you to be really caught up in this story and to be desperate to find out what happens next and i want you to turn the pages uh, and i want you to think i I'll turn the light out in a few minutes, but i just got to read a little bit more. And, and so a sentence that you have to read twice is just going to stop that process. Anyway, I think I'm the writer, it's my job to make my meaning crystal clear to you. Uh, there's no excuse for vagueness or, or misunderstanding. Every morning I look at what I wrote the, next, the day before, and I, I change it, I always change it, sometimes big changes, sometimes little changes. And the other thing is, when I rewrite, I write the first draft, which is the whole book, and then I rewrite it, but I don't edit. Because you know what? When I read what I've written, I think, uh, oh, that, oh, oh, Ken, that's really good. <laughs> and, but when I actually key the sentence again, I see how it can be improved. So that's what really why I don't edit the first draft, I completely rewrite the first draft because it, it helps me to see how sentences can be improved. So
2: do you write from beginning to end? Do you jump around in the book?
1: I never jump around, I never jump around. Look, it's I, I already have so much to hold in my head Particularly for a long book, the plot, the characters, the landscape, the lies people are telling one another—it's a huge amount of stuff to keep in your head. And if I wrote in the wrong order, I would, I would get hopelessly confused. So I'm strictly, uh, you know, strictly in chronological order. It's very popular now to write novels which which begin and then go back to the past and then maybe go to the future and chop and change like that. And uh, obviously people quite like them, but it's absolutely not my way. I, uh, I, I don't think I could keep track of, track of everything.
2: Is Sal your favorite character in this book?
1: Well, I like her a lot, I like her a lot. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but uh, at her wedding, and they're having a, I've had a very small feast, a barrel of beer and some oysters, and, and she says, She's talking about heaven, and she says, even in heaven, I don't think there's anything that tastes as good as oysters with ale. That's, a, that, that's her kind of approach to life, and I love that. I like Spade, though, as well. He's quite radical. He's quite anti-establishment, but he's smart. So when they're setting up, they're trying to set up a debating society to talk about politics. He says, don't call it a political society. Think of a better name. Call it the Socratic Society, he says, then nobody will think it's about politics. And uh, you won't get, you, you won't immediately be trodden upon by the, the magistrates of the town for having a political discussion. That's the kind of shrewd advice that he gives. I, I like him a lot, actually. And um, he does with great delight, sleep with the uh, wife of the bishop who is very sexy. So you also said once that history gives
2: rise to great stories. So if you develop, I'm going to write a story about the Industrial Revolution and then the war, and then you develop your characters to come out of that?
1: Yes, the plot does come first. Uh, I, I think of a period when there are the kind of conflicts that I can get a great story out of. Uh, And, and then I begin to think of that story uh, and uh, how it will be, how the people will be affected by what's going on in their country and in other countries. And once I've got the bones of the story, I start to think about the people who will be going through this and what their lives will be like and their relationships husbands and wives, children and workmates and uh, the, and, and the law and the army and so on. I really want a strong storyline uh, before I start thinking about the characters.
2: So you've written and researched so much about history. Are you optimistic about the future of this world and where we're at right now?
1: Well, I'm a natural optimist. I, I, my, it's my nature to think that we'll solve problems and get through them. Yeah, one or two things that worry me at the moment, uh, the climate is the, the worst problem that we face, I think, and um, we know what to do about it. But everything that we want to do is going to cost somebody some money. You know, we're all in favour of taking action to halt climate change. We all want the one, all of those, except the one that affects me. And But every, they all affect somebody. So there's always political opposition, and it's going to take uh, very—it's going to take strong leadership, I think, by uh, leaders in all countries, prime ministers and presidents, and so on, uh, to get anything done about climate change. So that kind of bothers me, and uh, you know, I have grandchildren, and uh, I'm worried about the world that they're going to grow up in. And you know, we mentioned about your
2: family—any writers among them?
1: Actually, yes. Yes, one of my granddaughters, my eldest grandchild, is 30 now and she's uh, beginning a career as a writer. She writes young adult fiction and uh, interested, she doesn't actually have any of my DNA because she's the daughter of my stepdaughter, but she's called me granddad all her life. <laughs> and uh, she, um, she's, she's very bright and sparky and a good writer. So I've got my fingers crossed. She's at the stage I was at when I told you that I was writing novels that were getting published but weren't bestsellers. And she's at that stage, but I think she's gonna go a long way. Her name is Alexandra Overy. So you've written so much about um, history and
2: and fictional history. Are you already thinking about a next project?
1: Oh yes, oh yes. Well, I delivered The Armour of Light at Christmas and I immediately started a new story. Uh, but, but I'm really sorry, I can't tell you about it, because, and I'll t- but I'll tell you why. The publishers, a year before a book is published, the publishers like to make an announcement. They say, this is Ken Follett's new book, this is the title, this is what it's about, here's the cover of the book, and it's, it's a story, you know, it gets in the newspapers and like that. And if I tell you all about it now, then that will spoil their announcement. And I do, I do, I really like to get on with my publishers. You know, they're very, they're very important. I want them to like me. (laughs) So, um, I'm, you know, I'm gonna do what they want in this case, but apologize to you that I can't tell you about the next book. So do authors ever
2: retire? Do you ever see yourself? Nope, I'm done. I'm not gonna write anymore. I can't imagine
1: it. I can't imagine it. You know, um, uh, I like it too much. Uh, And it's, you know, it's part of my identity. And, uh, and anyway, what am I going to do? There, you know, I guess some people work very hard for many years and then they just want to take it easy. Uh, and I don't feel like that. I don't feel, I'm not tired, I'm not, uh, I'm not, certainly not bored. I mean, writing, writing novels is, writing bestsellers is too difficult for me to get bored. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a challenge. Every book is a new challenge, there's no guarantee that what I what I write is going to be good. I've got to make it good, and uh, that's a challenge. And it completely absorbs me for years at a time. Often, often three years to write a book, and uh, I just can't imagine stopping. I mean, you know, I, I guess you know, one, one of these days I'll probably croak. But until then, I think I'll keep writing. <laughs>
2: We hope you don't stop writing. So at this time, we're gonna, we're gonna um, have the audience, if they'd like to ask any questions, they can come up to this mic right over here, if you would.
0: Mr. Follett, uh, you said earlier that uh, when, you, when you first started out, you wrote books that were published, but they weren't bestsellers. And then you learned how to write a bestseller. Could you, in a few sentences, I know that that's a very lengthy subject, but could you just generalize in a few sentences? What, what the hell did you learn?
1: Uh, well, there were three things that I did in Eye of the Needle that I had never done before. One was to plan it. Now, um, for, a be- in a, for a bestseller, you, you, there really always has to be some new thing that's capturing the reader's interest. You can't have any boring bits. And um, I, for me, it's not possible to do that without a plan. I have to uh, write a plan in which there's always a new story turn coming up that is gonna make you think, oh wow, oh wow, I didn't, wasn't expecting that, now what's gonna happen? Uh, the second thing is that i the Needle was the first book I researched. My previous books had all been set in the present time in London where I lived. And Eye of the Needle was set in, the world, in world War II, before I was born, quite a long time before I was born. So I had to research it. I had to find out what life was like in the Second World War uh, for, for ordinary people. And, um, and that research gave Eye of the Needle a texture, a feel for everyday life that I had never achieved before. And finally, perhaps because of my newspaper training, my books are always too short, too brisk, And of course, the novel reader does not want, the newspaper reader wants the facts, what's the story, one, two, three, four, five, and the novel reader doesn't want that. The novel reader wants to be drawn into the imaginary world that the writer is creating. And I managed to change my style with Eye of the Needle and to write at a slower pace and to focus on drawing the reader into the story so those are the things that changed with that book my 11th book
2: Um, hello Mr Follett I'm Gloria Lyon and my question is
0: in those previous 10 books because I've the needle was the first one I read as well but in those previous 10 books was there one of them that you felt um, because you said you you weren't popular yet that was still a well-written book
1: none of them was really good enough the last two that i wrote you can actually still buy the modigliani scandal and paper money they're still available because i'm not ashamed of them i think they're they're not bad and i think most people who read them enjoy them but um they're not on the par with eye of the needle and the books i wrote afterwards and so in each of those i there's a There's a preface by me in each explaining this is one of my early books, and I feel that it's not bad, but I just want to warn you that it's not as good as what came afterwards.
0: Hi, Pam Darling, and I am a Labrador owner, and I'm curious about what color Labradors you own.
1: Well, um, we always get two, uh, uh, and then when one of the pair dies, um, we get another two. So at the moment, we have three, The old one is called Nell. She's black. And now we have two young ones. They're almost two years old. One is yellow and the other is a reddish color. They call Fox. So the yellow one is called Fudge. Barbara calls um, her dogs by what I consider to be silly food names. And my dogs have sensible names. So my dog is called Peggy. She's the, the redhead. So they've been great for us, and and uh, we've had them for many years. Now, since we moved into this house, actually, had Labradors for many years, and, uh, you know, the family loved them, and the, the people who work for us in the house loved the dogs, and, uh, of course, we're very fond of them indeed. So there we are. That's that's my doggy family. <laughs> right. Thank
2: you. Another question? Hello, I'm Heather Shoemaker. I had a question about when you have your characters in the story, and there's a storyline you want to follow with them versus the, the complete facts in the history. And do you sometimes err on the side of, of changing something in history and giving a note to readers to say you changed it? Or do you like the characters to fit the history rather than the other way around?
1: I never change the history. And I don't disrespect writers who do. You know, everybody's got their own methods. But, but I'd really like to say to my readers, the historical background of this story is absolutely as accurate as I can possibly make it. And uh, so if, if, the story, if the story in my head conflicts with the history, then I change the story in my head. Uh, there, you, you may know a wonderful novel uh, uh, by an American writer called The Help. Do you, I don't know if anybody, yes. it was also a yes. great movie... And she says at the end of that, she writes a little note to say she's included in the novel, a mention of a Bob Dylan song called the times they are a changing. And she says, I know that this song wasn't recorded or even written at the time of my story, but it it, it's so appropriate to the story that uh, I put it in. So that that's her decision. You know, it's a great novel. I thought it was wonderful and I respect her enormously. And, and if, If another writer makes that decision, I don't criticize them at all, it just doesn't happen to be my way. I make the story fit the history. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We have time
2: for one more question.
1: Hi, Ken, this is from someone watching,
2: uh, zooming in virtually. It says, uh, someone introducing this event mentioned this is completing an eight part series by my count, the Kingsbridge novels number five or five in that, if there are three others, perhaps the Century Trilogy that I'm missing?
1: Yes, the questioner is absolutely right. The five Kingsbridge novels plus the Century Trilogy chronicle a thousand years of Western civilization. And um, the Century Trilogy, I planned to be a series, but the Kingsbridge novels, I didn't really plan. It just sort of happened that way. started with The Pillars of the Earth, moving on to World Without End and The Column of Fire, moved back in time to uh, The Evening and the Morning, which is about the Vikings, and then forward again to the Industrial Revolution. And then, of course, then if you want to read it in chronological order, you go from The Armour of Light to Fall of Giants, which is the first in the century trilogy. But actually, you don't really need to read these books in order. I mean, you, you know you know the order of history and... Um, Uh, you can read them in any order, and I think you'll enjoy them just as much.
2: Thank you. Ken, thank you so much.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: That was Pat Livingston talking with Ken Follett. Follett's latest novel is called The Armor of Light. Learn more about the National Writers Series and upcoming events at nationalwritersseries.org. And listen to past programs at interlochenpublicradio.org. For Interlock and in Public Radio, I'm Linnea
0: Carrick.